Welcome to Pragmatic Live, a podcast that helps product teams define, build, market, launch, and price innovative products. I'm Mark Stiving, a pragmatic marketing instructor and a pricing expert. And joining us today is Sean Murphy. I've known Sean for many years. He's one of the smartest and well-read people that I know. Many years ago when I was running and helping startup companies, I'd attend Friday morning breakfast meetings that Sean put on. It was always great to hear ideas from other entrepreneurs, but especially interesting to hear what Sean thought. Sean was an early employee at Cisco. He later returned there to manage business development. When he left Cisco in 2003, he ventured out on his own with the goal of helping entrepreneurs in high technology be successful. And he's been doing this ever since. He's helped hundreds of startups. Welcome, Sean. Mark, it's great to be here. I really thank you for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. And I'm going to have fun talking to you for the next half hour or so. Quick question. Are you still running those networking breakfasts? Yeah, we, we call them the bootstrapper breakfasts. Um, we, we meet three times a month in Silicon Valley. They're early in the morning. And then we've also got other volunteers that run them in a number of other cities, uh, San Diego, San Francisco, Oakland, um, Philadelphia, Tampa. Um, about 12 or 15 cities across the country now. Wow. I'll tell you what, I always found him interesting and fun, so I'm, I'm thrilled that you, you keep doing that. That's great. Well, I want to start this off with, uh, you may know that our audience is product management, and yet you tend to work a lot with entrepreneurs and startups. Me personally, I don't see a huge difference between the two. I mean, after all, I'm always telling product managers that they're the president of their product. Is that consistent with your experience or thoughts? I, I think so. I think good product managers are entrepreneurial, certainly. Uh, we have a couple of times we've been called in. Typically, when we work with more established firms, it's where a product has failed to meet revenue expectations, and they're trying to figure out how to uh, pivot or to relaunch or to figure out what to adjust. In most of the startups, the entrepreneur has to act as a product manager. So I do see a fair amount of commonality there. Yeah, I certainly remember back when I was running startups, we had one of my co-founders, he was the product manager, also VP of marketing and, and the single biggest co-founder, but, but he was doing all the product management functionality, driving it, driving it hard. So one of the things I see that seem to me to be different, though, is that product managers have less authority and more politics. What do you think of that one? Well... I, you know, anytime you have an organization, you have politics, right? We did a, uh, we got, we got called by a, uh, by a public company a couple of years ago that had launched a product and um, product had not met revenue expectations. And so they said, look, we've done this and we're, it was a new market for us. And here's where we are. And I said, we said, um, Anthony Scampavi and I were on the call and we, and we said, okay, look, you can, you can change the way you're talking about the product, you can change who you're targeting, or you can change the feature set. And that's typically from least expensive to most expensive. And then um, it, was a, it was a conference call, so they said, just a minute, and they put us on hold. And we were on hold for maybe like, I don't know, three, four minutes. And I said to Anthony, I said, you know, I've never been fired in the first five minutes of an assignment before, but this is... <laughs> so then they put, then the call came back on, and and they said yes. We've discussed it amongst them, ourselves, and um, we agree. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna look at it in that sequence. I think the thing that I enjoy about working with entrepreneurs is that 
if they don't like what you're saying, you'll just have the disagreement or the interaction right in front of them. I think in larger companies, you're right. There's more of this. It's more difficult to kind of call things the way they are sometimes. Um, so I, I think it's it's there's probably more internal selling involved in a product manager's role in a larger company than an entrepreneur faces, certainly until until his or her startup gets larger. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's jump into where, the direction I really wanted to take today's call, and that is sales forces. You've worked a lot in business development and creating sales forces and pushing pricing through sales forces. What do you see as the biggest issues if we're going to launch a new product or a new pricing model into a sales force? Well, that's a, that's a, that, there's a lot of aspects to that. I think the, the, the first thing often is getting people, getting the entrepreneur at least, willing to put a price on it. Um, I think the second thing is um, oftentimes in your beta process or your new product introduction process, you may offer some very substantial discounts to your beta folks just to compensate them for the costs that you're imposing on um, on them by asking them to help you evaluate and actually take a an unfinished product and help you finish it more. So so the trick is to lay the groundwork to be able to raise prices later or not anchor in the sales force's mind, hey, the product was only a dollar for the beta sites. Where are we going to charge, you know, $10 or $8 for the regular product? Um, so figuring out how to move from beta to the early deals to a sustainable price based on feedback from the field, I think, is a, is a delicate dance. Yeah, so you touched on two things. Let's, let's d dive into the second one for a second. Or first, I guess. How do you do the dance? What, what suggestions do you make to people to say, here's the way I want to present prices to a potential beta, while at the same time not messing up my market so that everybody expects deep discounts in the future? So there's a couple things to it. One is, I think you've got to go back and focus on what is the value to the customer and what's the impact on their operation or their infrastructure or their business. So the more you can be having conversations about objective criteria about the customer's situation, I think the better it is for both the field and the, um, and the product manager. I, I look at it a little bit, if you were two doctors trying to come to a diagnosis, you would be looking at objective measures, test results. You're, you're trying to actually look for objective indicators of where you're going to either solve a problem or create value in other ways. Yeah. And, and so it sounds to me, without having asked you or talked to you about it, it sounds to me that you are 100% behind this concept of value-based pricing. We're going to charge what our customers are willing to pay or how much value we deliver to them or some portion of that. As I understand it, yes. I think, I think there's always a baseline. There's always... So that's got to be tempered by what other alternatives are available to. I mean, your comp your competitors get a vote as well. But yes, if you if you take both their current operating baseline and then what alternatives are available to them, yeah. Are you working mostly with B two B type business because it's so much easier to find value or quantify value in B two B than it is in any B two C type spaces. So I have to tell you, we, we, we really, our typical client is a team of two to five engineers or scientists who have some kind of working technology and are selling to B2B 
business. So, so the physics of consumer markets, we just don't handle, we don't handle that. So everything that I'm talking about for the next 25 minutes or whatever relates to selling to business, not so much the psychology of selling to consumers or, or even, cons- even considered purchased by one individual. Okay. That makes sense. And that'll, that'll at least put boundaries around the conversations we're having here. The other thing that you were mentioning was the fact that entrepreneurs often don't want to put a price on something. Can you go into that? What, why, why are they afraid to put a price on it? You know, I don't know. Maybe when you were in high school and you were thinking about asking a girl out, there's, there's this point of time when you haven't actually asked her and she's turned you down that you can still imagine this wonderful evening together. And the, the problem is, is that when you actually put a price on something, then the other person says no or doesn't counter, then, then you're done. I think the way that, that some entrepreneurs try to finesse that is with, well, let's give it to them for free. Let's give them an evaluation. Let's give them a free evaluation. Um, pr- the pricing, pricing is where everything has to kind of, you, you get a real answer at that point. And, and there is a, um, in some cases, a very understandable fear that maybe what I've been working on for the last three, six months or a year isn't actually going to sell. And so if I, if I don't price it this week, I have another week living in this possible alternate future that's very enjoyable. Well, first, thank you for bringing up bad high school memories. <laughs> Second, it, it certainly seems to me that if we get the first customer, the second customer would be willing to pay more. And, and so maybe there's some of this, I want to give it away, I want to test it, I want some case study or proof points so I can go sell that in the future. So in, in, in B2B, there is, um, I think the most B2B customers are fairly astute at sussing out if you've got a free user. And so there's some value in having free users. And I think there's different, it's different if you're going to a, a nonprofit or an open source project or an educational project where the expectation is they're not going to pay very much versus giving it away to a business, which is, which is still a viable strategy. I, I think you've got to, you're almost always better to charge $100 or a dollar or $1,000 whatever, have them pay something than make it free because it, it fundamentally changes the dynamic and it allows the it allows the reference customer to answer truthfully, yes, we did pay for it. Yeah, I could see that. And the other thing that it seems to me is that if I can't sell it to that first customer, do I really have something of value? Right. So if they're the early customers typically are going to be in more pain um, and are going to be willing to pay something. The other the other thing I think the other way people go wrong is they say okay. Let's go to this very large company first. They've got the most need, um, and they'll pay the most, and then that'll that'll determine the market. And ordinarily, you've actually got to start. You've got to do this kind of this three D negotiation. You've got to start with the smaller people who can make decisions more quickly. Even though the value is less, you you, you get to exercise many of the points of your value model uh, before trying to go to larger firms. So we tend to encourage people to start in the middle of the pack or towards the bottom of the pack of prospects and get a fast no or a fast yes. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And, and you also see that when you go to these really large companies, there are oftentimes very complex implementations because there's so many things going on. 
Or if we go to the smaller or the mid-sized companies, the, it's much more manageable. We're, we're more likely to be successful quickly. Most technology offerings, if we're talking about selling some kind of technology offering, an instrument, a piece of software, or perhaps a complex service, there's going to be a certain amount of customization. In the very beginning, it can be hard to untangle what's missing from the product. So, so you've, you've got customers that are asking you for extensions or new features or customization, some of which is because the product is not maybe defective, it's not complete, and some of which is because, let's just say hypothetically, you know, General Motors or IBM has got this unique internal requirement. And it can be hard to determine, are you looking at a a, de a, def a missing piece of functionality, or you're looking at something which is required just for this one customer. So starting smaller, the smaller firms tend to be less idiosyncratic, I guess. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially if we're, try if we're trying to build those references and case studies. Boy, that makes a lot of sense. So I, to your earlier point, those also attack the, the prospect's perception of risk uh, in going with you. And so you've got both the price, the prospect's really looking at two things. One is what's it going to cost me? And, and at some level, what's the probability that at the end of the day, it's actually going to do what the vendor is telling me it's going to do. And the more of these case studies you have, the more you reduce that perceived risk of failure. Okay. Well, let's, let's switch topics a little bit. And, and when we think about Salesforce's how involved do you think a product manager or the president of a startup, however you want to look at this, should be in helping sales with pricing, especially in competitive situations? I, I think in the beginning quite a bit because, because in the beginning you've got more hypotheses about the market and the hypotheses about customer value and about competitive response. I mean, if you're in the third generation in a market you've been in for five or six years, um, things may be running, I mean, you may have well-established policies and, and why, why tinker with things. But in the beginning, I think it's good for the product manager, for the entrepreneur to be on the sales calls, to be talking to the customers and to understand the, the operating reality that, that, that they feel. Do you think that's different between startups and big companies with product managers? In the sense that I get the feeling that bigger companies have... Salesforces with processes that it's really challenging to get through, and a startup may have one or two salespeople, and and they're good friends with the founder of the company, probably. So it it, it you know it's a good question. It goes it goes both ways. I think that um, for new product introduction, you're probably going to work. You're going to want to work with a subset of the field in the beginning. There's going to be typically some salespeople who are more effective at new product introduction than at um, maybe turning the crank or scaling things up and figuring out who those people are that are able to find kind of early adopters or early accounts for you is, is part of what can make you successful as a product manager in a larger firm. The reality is most new products don't, don't work or don't work all the way. And so from a sales guy's perspective, if I can sell a product that I've already sold 50 or 100 times, and I understand pretty well everything, that's often more money than, than trying to get down the learning curve. And there's a sales learning curve just as there is a manufacturing learning curve and a development learning curve on a new product. So you want to find salespeople that are more comfortable 
moving down that learning curve. I think the other reason for the product manager to engage with the field is it's much more effective three months after launch or six months after launch to have a few salespeople get up and explain how they've sold the product to their peers than for you to still be the person in the front of the room explaining to them how you think they should be selling it. Because you're even if you're going on the calls with them, as a business development guy, as a product manager, you're never going to have the same level of credibility that a peer salesperson is going to have. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. In fact, we teach that exact concept in launch. We're teaching our launch class. One of the things I find interesting with what you just described is so many big companies seem to say, hey, I'm going to launch this new product, and they want to do a wide launch into everybody and every market and every market segment that they might be looking at. And what you essentially just described is, look, you got to go out and find a few customers that are willing to buy this and test it and tweak it and the process. So there, I, I'm a huge fan. Mark Leslie wrote this Harvard Business Review article called The Sales Learning Curve, and it's maybe a decade old now. Um, and he's now a venture capitalist, but he, but he was an entrepreneur before that. And I, I really think that there's, a, there's an increasing recognition that in the same way that in a, in a manufacturing line, you do a pilot, you do a prototype, you, you, you try and de-risk that process. The, the big bang launch, um, certainly after the dot-com collapse, has kind of gone out of favor. I mean, if you I mean, so again, we don't do consumer, but my understanding, having attended um, talks and lectures by people at Procter & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson is they do a ton of testing um, before they before they launch products, and they, they there's a lot of testing that's involved, and I think that's that's also important in the B two B space. It's funny that you say that, and I agree with you completely. But you know, I teach a lot of product marketing managers, people who are usually launching new products when we come up with them, and when we teach them this concept of having a, a launch strategy, a specific approach, and who you're going after, it's just brand new to most of them. They're thinking, oh, we launch a product, we launch it to everybody. I also, you know, I, I, I have, um, I've worked as an, an entrepreneur and a change agent in some large firms as well. And that typically involves being an early adopter of technologies, either ones that are being developed internally or by working with other startups. And I think that there are, um, Again, in the B2B space, there are certain customers that are more friendly to new products and will actually take it out, take it out on a kind of a shakedown cruise for you or more willing to work with you. It's um, especially the more innovative or the more uh, novel a new offering is. If, it, you know, if, if, if you've got something which is a form, fit, and function replacement for an existing product and you're better, faster, cheaper – and you require no behavior change or no process change or no workflow change on the part of the customer, then you can probably safely do the big bang launch because your argument is it's just like that, but it's 10% cheaper. It's just like that, but it's 20% faster. Um, as you depart from what are more kind of incremental products into um, ones that require changes in workflow or, or work design, then I think you're, you're well advised to go through uh, a slower introduction process. So you can, you can be better. The other reason to do that is 
the, the real thing the customer's looking for is not that they've signed the check or they've signed the PO and that they've given you their money. They're looking at a value realization step or they're looking at where, where can they go back to management and go, look, we've actually proven that this new thing has taken this risk out of the process or, or cut our costs by this much or cut our cycle time by this much. And that may occur after purchase. So um, you, you need to really focus on when does the customer know they've got value, not just, you know, they, they gave us a check. Yes, absolutely. And, and so that kind of leads me into another topic that I love, and that's this concept of win-loss. Are we out doing win-loss and finding out how much value we did deliver to customers? We look at three outcomes. Um, so we do a fair amount of win-loss. Uh, you can also call that why did they buy? You're asking essentially the same questions. There, there, there's, there's a third outcome um, in win-loss, which is that – so we define, we define a win as – they purchase the product and they're they're in production and using it. A loss is they didn't purchase from you, they purchased from somebody else, or they funded an internal project to go solve the problem. And there's another category, which is you actually went and you gave three demos and you gave two revised proposals and you met with the committee and you check back in 90 days later and they haven't moved forward on anything. And so we call that a no decision. And that 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 outcome is surprisingly common. I mean, that may be, depending upon the sales force, anywhere from a third to a half of the outcomes, so that it was on the forecast. I, I think the reason to do win-loss is both to probe for the value realization, to probe for the value that's there. It's also to refine your diagnostic and discovery process to make sure that you're actually talking to people that are in enough pain or have enough need, they're, they're going to make a decision. We call that no decision group, we call them the status quo. Status quo. In that their problems aren't bad enough, they're not going to spend money to solve them. Sometimes, though, you get people in large companies that have too much time on their hands that love to talk to salespeople, that you can expand a lot of effort yeah. uh, into that no decision. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so when we teach win-loss, I mean, we teach a lot of things around win-loss and things that you need to go learn. But from our perspective, one of those really important things are what are the buying criteria that people are using and who are the different people involved in the buying process? And so if you could separate out the no decision type people, type personas from the people that are actually making decisions, whether it's in your favor or not in your favor, boy, that's a huge win for your sales force. Right. And I think you're in the beginning, certainly, one of the reasons to do the launch more slowly is so there's two things that happen, right? When you're, if you're a product manager, you're very excited about what the product can do. And when you imagine this product in, in a hundred different firms, you see value in all a hundred of them because you're excited about the product. And a little bit of the win loss, I think helps to help you calibrate on where, where people really have enough pain to make a change and what may be some blockers or some, some aspects of their existing process or infrastructure that make your product much less suitable. And so if you can, you can explain to the field, avoid these situations, you know, A, B, C, D. And if you hear either this or this, then you've got a real prospect on your hands. I think that saves everybody time. Okay. So the, the last topic I really wanted to touch on today is sales compensation. And as we're launching new products, how do you handle that? Because salespeople, as you said already, they don't want to change what they're doing. They'd rather sell the tried and true stuff. You know, it's, it, it, it's a tricky thing. It's a very tricky thing. Um, 
So the other the other side of this is, as the sales guy discounts, do you take that out of his commission or not? And how do you how do you avoid the tension of if he's only compensated on the deal and not the size of the deal or the margin in the deal, then you create one kind of conflict. Um, the flip side is if you, so I think there's a couple things. I think as a product manager, you've got to have at least an, a pretty clear idea of what the niche is you're looking for and give the field some targeting criteria or some, some kind of some objective tests that a prospect should pass. They should be of this size. They should be in four different, they should be operating in four different sites or they should be trying to move this amount of bandwidth or they should be trying to process this many, you know, uh, protein calculations in a week or they should be trying to run this many blood tests or what. In other words, there should be some relatively objective criteria that can be used as part of the selection and forecasting process. The, the second, so that, so that if you want to pay them to bring you the opportunity, you can break that out and you can say, yes, you've satisfied, you know, you've at least brought us from the people you know, people that we believe are viable prospects based on these criteria. And so, and so you might think about compensating just to get those conversations in the, in the beginning because many things can happen between talking to a viable prospect and your ability to close before you've debugged the rest of your process. So that's one thing to consider. The other is, I think, to work in small batches and to work with a few people at a time and to be much more rigorous about debriefing after the sales calls about what's working in the materials. I mean, especially in the beginning as a product manager, you may have a data sheet, you may have a demo, a presentation, a frequently asked questions list. All of this is getting debugged in parallel as a part of the sales process. So, so involving the field in that and, and finding some way to pay them for their time um, because the payoff for them, it may take another six months, nine months for you to get fully down that learning curve. And as we know, if you're in sales, definition of an eternity is 13 weeks because every 13 weeks you get, you get judged on whether you deliver the goods or not. Yeah. So, so that's actually really interesting. I'd never thought of, of comping salespeople just on effort at the beginning. If you've got clear criteria and you've got, um, uh, you know, if you've got objective criteria, so you don't, you, you know, the, the criteria can't be, can they fog a mirror, you know? Right, right. You're essentially using it. Now, I think that's more appropriate for large firms. I mean, on the marketing side, you do this all the time. You buy leads, you pay for leads in a variety of ways. So there's no reason why you can't do something similar for the field. And, and you're teaching them as we go. We're finding good clients. And we're learning for and 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 so again, I think that there's there's different levels of salesperson, but we, we normally find that even in a large field, there's five or ten percent of that field that are more entrepreneurial and can help you in that early process. Now later on, when you want to get to scale, then you need to maybe be less experimental and more turn the crank, and then different people come to the front. But in the beginning you want to try and locate the more um, entrepreneurial, maybe entrepreneurial is the wrong word. You want, to, you want to locate the people that are still willing to learn and are willing to put up with you when the first incarnation of the demo, you know, is not very good. Yeah. Oh, Sean, it looks like we're out of time. But can I say you are brilliant as always. I love having these conversations with you. <laughs> 
Um, if anyone wants to contact you, how can they do that? Probably the best way to get acquainted would be to schedule a no-cost, no-obligation office hours session. We have a website, www.skmurphy.com, and on there there's a big button that says schedule an office hours session, and just happy to uh, chat. Excellent. Well, to our listeners, we hope you got value out of this podcast. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Praise, suggestions for improvement, questions you'd like us to address, or, or even just random thoughts. They're all welcome. Please send your comments to experts at pragmaticmarketing.com. And please join us for the next episode of Pragmatic Live.